Hello everyone and welcome to What Will The Smart Party Do? This time we have yet another Stunt Baz. That's right, Baz isn't back just yet, he's still on his holidays and things. But we haven't got Guy this time, we've got Dirk the Dice from the Grudnung Files. How are you doing Dirk? I'm great, thank you. Thanks guys. Uh, I want to be a Stunt Baz because you know, you know, I'm stuck in the 80s uh, guys, so I like to be the Fall Guy, you know, Lee Majors. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm the, uh, I say that's that's a good aesthetic. I like that. <laughs> I'm the unknown stunt man who makes the Kingdom Dungeons look so good. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to today's topic. So we talked about uh, GM advice and things like that because we've been discussing different tactics and and tips and things like that, and we've played in each other's games. And there's quite a lot of products out there on the market, or even free things and blogs and other stuff that give advice for GMs. And I know that's traditionally one of the things that a lot of people will skip over, even if it's in a book. And there's a GM advice chapter. And if you've played some games before, you think, I know all that. I just leaf past the pages really quickly and get on with your game. But actually, there's lots of cracking advice in there. So we've been scouring the internet and our bookshelves and various other things for some top tips and some interesting things that are out there. So what have you looked at first of all, Dave? What's, what's on your list? Well, it won't surprise you that I went back to the past and I think the first guide that I ever read was one by Lou Pulsifer in uh, White Dwarf uh, Issues 34-36, uh, A Guide to Dungeon Mastering. I don't even remember nice. this one. Like, well, I do. I like the, like the visual representation. And listeners won't get the full effect, but <laughs> yeah. trust us, listeners, that's a well-thumbed copy of White Dwarf. <laughs> Yeah, and um, you see, I think it's an interesting period in role-playing history at this point because there's a bit of a paradigm shift sort of taking place because obviously previous to that there was kind of the war game idea of uh, role-playing and in that early period of the 80s you're kind of shifting into a more story-orientated game and you used to get a lot of these guides that were trying to encourage the games master not to be adversarial so you know you're not you're not playing against your players and that's really the gist of uh, this advice that he's giving so i think one of the lines he uses is um, the dm shouldn't refer to it as my troll rather as a troll <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know you should encourage your players to be rewarded for being wary intelligent and uh, imaginative and it's just trying to you know, get get away from the idea that somehow as a games master you're pitted against the players and you are, you know, you 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 got a place in making this fun and entertaining. Because I think uh, I think still, you know, you said you said there's a lot of stuff out there. There's like a mystique around games mastering, isn't there? And, and there was then they were trying to break it down, but by creating these guides back then, they were actually contributing to the mystique of running the game. You know that yeah. that, and that's that's part of the trap, isn't it? That some of these guides sometimes fall into that by the, by trying to break down the elements of being a games master and reveal the secrets. And uh, <laughs> the, I think Gary Gygax uh, did one um, a bit later uh, than this one by Lou Pulsifer, uh, and he did a couple of mass market paperbacks that were talked about mastery of the game. And you know yeah. that you had to be all-encompassing of of everything. And you know, and every as every smart party listener knows that it takes more than the games master to bring fun to the table. Um, but 
still at this point it was all about how the games master the dungeon master was the ultimate arbiter and organizer of the world that they created yeah and i think there's still an element of that with a lot of people it was interesting we spoke to uh one of the D design team i can't remember which one it was now off the top of my head but when we mentioned that sort of angle of it's up to the players to contribute and that kind of stuff as well they still sort of said like oh yeah yeah you know they should like you know bring cookies and stuff and it's like no no i mean in the session <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah but yeah. Like, i didn't really have the argument because you don't do that with your guests but it felt like they were still in that mindset that the gems on one side of a screen and the players are on a different one and there's like some information that can pass and some that can't and there's yeah it's that element you say that making it seem a little bit secretive like there's a dark art to it and if you join the GMs club, then you're allowed to look at the secrets and you can learn the techniques and all the rest of it. And if you're on the player side, then they should be hidden from things and, and not even notice them by the entertainment that you provide. Yeah, and I'm probably overselling what the particular guest said, but that that's it's indicative of that kind of thought process that's gone through the whole of D and D and other games for for decades, like I say, since the eighties. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting approach. One of the books I looked at, I think it was maybe nineties, was "Listen Up, You Primitive Screwheads" for Cyberpunk, which I used to recommend as a good like gym advice book. But flicking back through it recently, it's not very good. <laughs> I decided, but because part of it was that adversarial element, you know, part of it is like, how do you track down the players if they've not been good enough on the Shadowrun kind of thing, and you know, how would the court track them down, and what would they do, and. It was definitely written in adversarial style of GM versus players rather than GM characters versus player characters or something like that. Yes. So it's interesting how things have transformed. Yeah. But there is, I think, for a lot of people, that mistake, like you say, there's that kind of us and them thing still persists. If, if perhaps not into the hard border, then there's a feeling of it almost. It's interesting. It was a three-parter, this, uh, uh, this advice. And I remember it quite well. I remember it quite well because... Uh, the thing I remember about it was the idea that he wouldn't allow his players to use lanterns as bombs. Um, <laughs> he, he forbids it in his game. And the great thing is, is that we didn't even think about it until we saw it in this article and we thought, yeah, we're definitely <laughs> going to use our lanterns. <laughs> brilliant How much is a flask of oil? <laughs> <laughs> but even though he's trying to break down this idea of an adversarial DM, it's all about withholding things from the players so withholding secrets withholding information um, revo- yeah. uh, and saying you know characters shouldn't be progressing quickly and whilst he's saying <laughs> don't don't kill your characters he's saying don't give them anything either because it'll make them hungry you know to to continue <laughs> uh, my, my favorite bit is um he talks about how you know you might by accident as a games master give your characters um, something too powerful, you know, it'll, you know, to break things. You, you might give them something that, you know, that, you know, the, everything is uh, destroyed by it. So he said, an inexperienced uh, games master, what they would do is try and have a vendetta against that character. And I've done that. I've done that in the past. Uh, I would try and get, try and get it off the try, try and aim everything at them. But he said, you know, you shouldn't do that. As a more mature games master, you should reason with the player um, to give it up, to uh, give it back, to kind of reverse engineer that that thing. And he says, if that doesn't work, 
then have a vendetta against the character. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad he wasn't ruling it out completely. Yeah. <laughs> Just say it's polite to ask first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. I was, um, I was playing some board games and stuff over at a friend's house, and uh, his girlfriend was asking quite recently, like, like, do you pick on players if there's one you don't like? <laughs> so, like no, I, if I don't like someone, they're not in my game. Like, there's not. That never comes up. <laughs> yeah, not picking everybody's character like that's silly. But uh, yeah, it's, it is funny looking back in that window to things like White Dwarf and the early days of role playing and things that were considered normal almost. Yeah, like you say that that kind of the gems got all the power and players haven't. Yeah, which, I, I don't know. Uh, on, on, the, a bit odd now. on the flip side, um, at around the same time, Imagine Magazine in the UK, uh, but which was a TSR. Magazine, ironically, was doing completely different things because they had more of a an idea of this idea. Like we said about, it's about the NPCs, it's about the characters, and mm. um, you know you bring they had a, a, a series called Pelinor, and that kind of gave you little nuggets about the characters that you encountered and how story could be generated by interacting with them i think we've said it on our podcast that when you look back at these magazines it's all orientated towards the games master and the other thing that you notice about all these magazines that are, that were produced at the time is that white dwarf was always pitched at a younger audience when you look at some of the other magazines that are around like different worlds and imagine to some extent they expected more of a degree of maturity from their audience than White mm. Dwarf did. Because White Dwarf was always yeah. pitching it as a new hobby. And it was always had like onboarding issues where they would have the guides, what what is role playing? You know, what Yeah. It was always pitched at like inexperienced I always, I always think I, I didn't think I didn't think back then, but reading it now I can see that the pitch of it was very different than some of the American magazines that were around at the time. Yes. Yeah, I think there's there's always a difference between American and UK stuff as well, isn't there? Yeah. In terms of um like I'll 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 bring us bang up to date to two thousand and two and Robin Law's good game mastering you I'll yeah. let you go back in time again if you've more old yeah, 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 sure. to bring up. But um one of the things he notes in there is that there's um the English concept of heroism is less about victory than endurance and the fate of seemingly impossible odds. So in America or US games, it was like it's much more acceptable that like you're going to be victorious, that you defeated the enemy, and that's that's all right and proper in the land of the free and stuff. And bald eagles are screeching in the background and all the rest of it. But for a UK audience, they're much more happy, like something like Cthulhu, for example, or Warhammer, you know, where you're down in the in breaking the mud and all the rest of it. And if you can fight your way through it and survive to a pipe of weed at the end of the day, you'd be happy, kind of thing. You know, that, that's just reward for a hard day's struggle. So that that's interesting that as like twenty years ago nearly he was writing about that sort of thing as a GM consideration that depending on who your audience is and where they're from in the world they might have different expectations about what what the game will involve or what constitutes a victory or what people might be pleased by or how they expect their heroes to behave and that kind of stuff. One of the notes in there is that the UK and Games Masters therefore can assume greater license to be rough on their players, <laughs> which I thought was an amusing observation. I think Robin's Canadian, isn't he? But um, it, it was it was fun that he'd made that observation that 
I think I've spotted looking at it as well from the opposite side of things, where if I ran games in Gen Con, I might have to be easier on the players because they might not be as used to the advertisy that we are over here, perhaps. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I, I mean, I've, I've played uh, with a few American players over the last uh, couple of years because I, um, I, prior to a couple of years ago, the only people I played with were people I've been playing with for a long, long time. And so it was a bit of a revelation a few years ago, playing with different people and seeing different styles. And you're right, there seems to be more goal-centred approach with uh, American gamers and playing in American games. Whereas I think it, there's more of an attitude of just doing it for the lols, if you know what I mean, in, 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 as young kids might say, you know, just uh, like trying to mess things up. Trying to uh, challenge things, and uh, even if uh, there's a lot of risk to it, players will have a go at, at doing it in the UK. But it's funny you should mention that Robin Law's book because that's the one I turned to when I started playing with more players. Because I, I had a bit of uh, GMitis, you know, that feeling of I can't do this. I'm not good at it. Like imposter syndrome or something. Yeah, yeah. When 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 I started playing with um, more people and extending the range of people I was playing with and playing with people from different countries, etc., I just felt like I needed something just to explain why I was feeling so uncertain. And Robin Law's book was really good because I think that does a really good job at identifying that people want different things out of these games, and part of the knack is just understanding around the table what it is they're trying to draw from it and he kind of categorizes different types of players doesn't he and, That's right, yeah. uh, and encourages you to try and find beats as he calls it to try and reach out to those to give them rewards to playing the game that's right yeah so he talks about like uh well i'll not go through the categories but there's people like power gamers or you know the amateur dramatic types or whatever and probably, I imagine, if you looked at it again now, recategorise it so anyone reading the book in current times might think, well, those those definitions aren't right or there's more definitions or whatever. So you've got to bear in mind that players might be two or three of those things amalgamed and all the rest of it. But, yeah, it's very good that not just in terms of giving every player spotlight, but thinking of something that will be rewarding for a type of player as well outside sort of character spotlight, thinking... You know, there's one kind of guy who turns up and all he wants is to do the fights. You have to make sure there's some like good engaging fights in there, and someone else will want to do all the the silly voices or whatever, or you know, just talking character of a negotiation. So you've got to make sure there's some kind of scene where you have to have some kind of like hostage negotiation or something or whatever it is to have to tick their box as well. So it's a it's a good book for many ways in kind of covering off the sort of social contract aspects that perhaps other gym advice books don't. Yes. You know, a lot, a lot of other GM advice you see out there is all about, like, oh, make sure you've read the rules and do this and do that. But it, it was very insightful in terms of showing that he'd, he'd obviously thought about all the different people that he'd encountered along the way and the different games he played and styles. And still, like, in his mind about making the game entertaining as a GM, he's thinking, like, how do I cater for all these different types of people? You know, you try and identify what their wants and needs are and then give them something of that in, in every game and spread it out as evenly as you can, kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's a really um, different and clever way of talking about games mastery. And in a positive way as well, because, you know, going back to that Gary Gygax book, it talks about problem players and some of those uh, characteristics that Robin Laws identifies. Gary Gygax says these are problems, you know, but they're not yeah. necessarily the problems. They're just what people want different things, don't they? They want different experiences from playing. And part of uh, the skill is trying to 
judge that and trying to make sure that you go in there with entertainment in mind you need to kind of reach those parts that people want to get out of it yes emotional kicks i think he calls them in the book yes yeah just it's gives just, a, give the players a little endorphin boost every now and again yeah and it's a bit it's a bit like my my, uh, my mate eddie he play, plays you know he I've played with him for for years and years and I know how to meet his rhythms and what have you. And when I try and do anything exciting, like uh, try and get him motivated, his character, he just dismisses it. And it's, and I realise after reading the book, it's because he doesn't want, he don't want any of that out of it. He doesn't want to, he he doesn't want to go to some festival that's, uh, you know, life or death. He wants to just, you know, meet things and if necessary, hit him with a sword. And it's not necessarily <laughs> not necessarily a bad thing, you know. I just need to try and incorporate that so he can carry on doing it. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot of uh, articles and things from problem players, and I've I've got a list of ways to deal with problem players when they are a problem, <laughs> but that's usually in person dealing with a person, not <laughs> yes. As you say, some people just might have a different type of game in these, so it's important that you, if you're going to play games, try and find like-minded people and play those sorts of games with those sorts of people, so that yeah. Some of the advice out there is perhaps not helpful because it's trying to find system ways of solving two people wanting different two different things, and it's not like it doesn't matter which system you play, you're not going to solve that issue, if you know what I mean. What do What do you think about Robin Lord's use of the idea of beats or beats in a, a session and trying to kind of organise your sessions around those beats? How do, How do you go about doing that? Is that something that you think of in a game? Um, not necessarily. I think more in terms of scenes and things like that. Yeah. Because I've like seen like a few of Robin's seminars. I saw a couple of Germany that are quite interesting, and he's obviously written all kinds of other stuff as well. I have a lot of time for Robin's work, but for things like I think the early hero quest he mentioned that sort of had these uh, upward journey. So if you imagine a line going up, and every now and again it's got a dip when there's some adversity or whatever, and then it starts going back up again as the hero starts succeeding. And it will end up higher than it was the last time before it dips again. But the general trend is this like waggly line going upwards, if you know what I mean. You suffer setbacks and overcome them and go up till eventual victory. And he, he talked about sort of like dis- setting your session up so that that will happen. So you'd obviously have certain beats of highs and lows and that kind of stuff. Uh, almost writing like a play or a story or something in my head is how I saw it being described. Uh, but I'd, I'd rather the session is more fluid than that. And I don't care if. The players have to suffer three setbacks before they recover one or whatever, or you know. Yeah. That's because you're a British gamer. That's what it is. That's that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I I try and introduce more flexibility in my games. I really too much sometimes, a bit too sandboxy perhaps for some people. But I lack of enough ammunition so that I can provide things if I need to for the players. Whether that's bangs as Ron Edwards would call them, we introduce some exciting thing that just happens or a set number of scenes and I might be able to throw some away if I don't need them or add extra ones and if I do yeah, and that kind of stuff See, it's interesting that bangs and beats uh, kind of language that's caught on isn't it because I think that's part of the difficulty with uh, role playing games I mean, it's, no, it's no wonder that it produces so much punditry because we can't even dis- uh, agree on how you describe the actual hobby, you know the fact that you know no. when when anybody asks you, you say, "Well, it's a, it, it, you know, it's it's a board game without a board," and then somebody will come along. No, it isn't. It's a consensual storytelling experience where something like football, where it's just people kicking a ball from one end of the field towards a goal, they can produce hours and hours and 
reams and reams of punditry you know you can understand that but what what i think's different about uh, role-playing games is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of agreement on the terminology or the language we use to describe what we do so yeah things like bangs and bangs and beats is interesting because that's caught on yes um i think you might have been in your deep freeze when the the forge was around but there's you know a lot of theory on there and some people hated it some people loved being in that sort of like environment and it's all where, where GNS theory was created all that kind of stuff and Ron Edwards gave his famous line about if you play D&D you, you're brain damaged and all this kind of stuff so there's, it was it was a bit of a, a soup of ideas and some people got really well there's a mixed bag some people were quite pretentious about it some people just generally wanted to get into that real academic feel of breaking down what is role playing it is constituent atoms and be able to rebuild it in different ways and all that kind of stuff like for me that was all a bit much like i do i've got a podcast and so have you so we like talking about games that's no secrets for anybody but and i like talking about some of the academic style stuff of it but there's a limit yes for me and when you try and get too hard on definitions what you start doing is alienating some people yes yeah and when you you insist that this thing means that and someone else thinks it means something else that's why Twitter's full of angry people, or one of the reasons that two people have got conflicting ideas about what a word choice means, and they end up arguing two completely different things, and then everybody else gets involved. Yes. But with no clear definition about what it is that you actually mean that you're talking about, it can be confusing. So I understand the drive to get to definitions for things, because then that makes the conversations easier. I think with role-playing, it's too hard to get to definitions a lot of the time, including um, bangs, for example. I've just thrown them there willy-nilly. What I generally mean by that is something exciting that just happens regardless of the plot kind of thing. Yes. You know, men with guns walk in, as the old uh, writer's advice you know, goes for some like noir novels and things. But um, one of the books we might talk about earlier, uh, later rather, from Sly Flourish has got a thing in there saying, I've used the term bangs, and I know there's a strict definition from Ron Edwards, but I mean it to mean this other thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that some people are conscious of the word choices they use and then go, it doesn't mean what you mean. You might think it means, but I mean this. But I'm going to still use this word anyway. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing I found with uh, Robin's Laws, which uh, I found it fascinating because uh, obviously I wasn't around uh, during the Forge years, but it was the first thing that I'd read was more theoretical idea of what was going on and what what the relationship was between players and uh, games masters. But there wasn't much in terms of practical tips. Whereas yeah. my next one, and I think uh, we've, we've both got this one, the Lazy Dungeon Master, uh, Sly Flourish, uh, which was originally uh, came out in uh, 2012. And it's highly thought of, isn't it? It's highly thought of. It, I, I, lots of people have pointed me towards uh, this book. And to be honest, yeah. until we did this, I haven't even read it. Um, so, but I'm glad I have because it is it is more practical minded, isn't it? It is more pitched at trying to help people out. And I think what it sets up is this idea is that you you, do, you need to just prepare for what you need at the table. So the old essence is is you know don't mo- most people over prep. So just prepare for what you need um, to present to to the players at the table. So that's the that's the concept. Now, I, the reason why I'm re- I've been reluctant to pour into it is that I never work like that anyway. I know that uh, Blythe, my co-host, when he sits down to write an adventure, he writes it as though it's going to be published. He just writes it from right. beginning, beginning to end. Uh, mine, mine are on these uh, 
bits of uh, post-it note here. I might have a, a word <laughs> and I might move them around, but they never That's get rid of it. That's a little A5 notebook you've got with yeah. like big, massive letters in filling half the page and yes. a bit of highlighter on it here and there and that kind of thing. Yeah, so I don't, Stars I, around something. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I was kind of predisposed towards this uh, approach that he advocated, this idea of just thinking about two or three points about a location or a person or something that you're going to have on there but what I found was interesting and totally opposite to how I play or prepare for a game is that it he starts with character and NPCs and mm. I tend to go for action incident things that are going to happen and when I'm thinking it through that's what I'm thinking of so I'm thinking of those points where the play character is going to have to deal with something that's happening and I've, I've used his uh, approach, I've started planning an Eberron game um, this week and instead of starting with right, what do I want to happen in this I started developing some characters that they might encounter and he's right that as soon as you start thinking about right, there's three characters they're going to meet in here, let's think about their background, their motivation what is it? what is it about them that they want from the how, how, how are their stories going to interact with the play character stories as soon as you start doing that you start having great ideas so when you yeah. put it in place it, it, and that's totally different from how I would normally start yeah I normally start either from the, the play characters if I've got some ideas about what the characters are I, I might start with that and then work out what they're going to do or what, what it might be but from the GM side of things I typically think about what's going on yeah. like there's some situation that's happening Yes. Like who who wants something? Who's you know like there's some villain by the player's eyes, but by his eyes, he's doing something reasonable. He's got some goal. He's got a motive. There's a reason why he's doing this thing. And then you build up what might happen as a result of him doing these things, and how do the players get involved? And that's I go from that kind of angle more often, thinking about what's happening before the players get involved, and then you work out where to insert them in that sort of like flow of stuff that might be happening. Or people that are, you know how they're interacting. So two sets of bodies that are fighting each other. Then you throw your players in the middle. Yes. But I'll have formed in my head what's going on before characters start doing anything with it. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Because I think that gives you more a convincing set of things that will be happening, a world for the players to face. If you thought about what the world looked like and what's going on and what the, what's the story here. Yeah. Well, as, you know, I, I, so let's take let's take there's a, a there's a hideout that they want to claim in the city and they don't know it but it's infested with kobolds so my normal thinking is right I want a terracotta pot smashing at the door there's going to be a trap on it it's going to have a giant centipede in it Um, there's going to be some flying kobolds on the outside they're going to encounter at the end because they're going to be great to drop things on them and I'm thinking about it like that whereas if you think about right Who's the head of these kobolds? Why are they here? What are they? Yes, what are that's they? more my kind of approach. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, I don't do that. I just think of cool things to have. <laughs> I mean, I still do think of like cool stuff as well. Like Once I've got an idea, I'm like, right, what cool scenes could we have? But it's kind of like the ordering in which you think of things. And I'm more likely to think of why the kobolds are here and who they displaced. And what, like, how come they can keep hold of this place? Why has nobody else taken it off them yet? Or all those sort of questions. I've my own lonely fun about what is happening in the game world kind of thing. Yes, yeah. And then that gives you more of a rich tapestry when players start doing things because they'll go off on tangents or ask bizarre questions or whatever else. 
if you thought about it from that kind of angle, you've got more of an idea yourself about what you think the answers will be straight away. Yes. Without having to try to work out details that you haven't even considered because you've you've not even looked at that. What you've done is gone, ooh, cool scenes. Yes. Let's have some <laughs> let's have a flying dragon and we're gonna have this what kind of dragon? Yeah. You're a black one, so there's acid, I like acid. Yeah. Acid rain, that's great. Yeah. You know, like kind of... Yeah. No, but I, I did think that was good about this approach. And the other advice that he gives is about using frameworks. So taking the core of a, an idea and stealing it from somewhere else and um, thinking about, right, how can I incorporate that? Mm. So recently you played a game with me this weekend, didn't you? It's set in the world of Hawkmoon. But that that idea of that essentially came from Money Heist, which is on Netflix uh, this right. idea of, you know, okay, a normal heist is you get in there, get out as quickly as you can. With this heist, you have to get in there and produce something. You've got to stay there, well, and it's dangerous. And there's still a clock ticking while you're staying there. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. so it, I, did, I like that idea as well. So look for frameworks or ideas and build it around a framework rather than thinking about the full story that, mm. you, that you're going to develop, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've looked at the Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is like his his follow up, which builds on that book. Uh, and, and there's a lot of similar things there. One of the things he mentions is reskinning monsters, for example. So you might have, I don't know, whatever it might be. I'm trying to think of an example now. But if you've got stats for a harpy in D and D, it could easily be an ornithopter in Hawkmoon or something else. You know, you just yes. change all the window dressing but keep the same stats. Like the players will never know. Yeah. If instead of breathing fire, it's now shooting lasers from its eyes, just roll the same damage and everything into hit numbers, but describe it differently. Which is, which is interestingly kind of like what toolkit systems like Savage Worlds do is they give you the, the raw mechanics and then say you add your own flavor. And I think some people struggle with that. Whereas if you give them a concept like use something out of the DMG, but dress it up differently into something else people wholeheartedly will grab that. I think that's a great idea. And it's, yes. It's like that's it's not a new idea, but I think as we've discussed, like a lot of the things that we see in advice or whatever is not it's not all necessarily completely revelatory, but it'll be new to some people or the way it's explained makes it suddenly click a light bulb in someone's head and think, Yeah, that's a good idea that they hadn't thought of before. Yeah. I th- I think what's good about the Lazy Games uh, Dungeon Master uh, is that although it's presented as a a concept, an idea. You don't have to wholeheartedly embrace everything he says. You can pick and choose. Whereas some of the advice books really want you to think about the world differently. And I, I think yeah. as gamers, we do have little rituals, don't we, and habits that we like to mm-hmm. fall back on um, as yeah. a games master. And so yeah. it's it, it's easier to incorporate some of these ideas that he's expressing than some of the wholesale, right, change how you're doing this because you're doing it wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, there's no bad, wrong fun. So I think one of the interesting things from the return book is that he mentions boiling down your preparation to the things that matter most. And the less, well, bold statement, which says the less we prepare, the better our games will be. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think it's true for some people. And that's that's the caveat to all this advice. Uh, as we say, there's different types of players and different things. There's different GMs who want different things, you know. I don't mind doing some Photoshop and producing some nice handouts for my games. I find that fun. So I wouldn't take the advice, don't do that, Gary, because it's not necessary. Because I like doing it, like, in and of itself as an activity, you know. Yeah. But, but I would appreciate that someone like yourself might not want to sit there 
trying to work out how to Photoshop pictures and stuff like that. You wouldn't, you'd find that a chore, perhaps. Yeah. So I think it's you have got to pick and mix with the advice a little bit, and I think there's there's good stuff in there. So I like the idea of not doing wasteful prep. Don't you know if you hate doing stat blocks and stuff, don't spend weeks doing stat blocks with creatures that the players might not encounter. For example, that's clearly a waste of your effort. You just draining your own enthusiasm for gaming doing something that is unnecessary potentially yes yeah that's no, a good one preparing what benefits the games this got, got a view of bullet points basically of how to do it he goes into more detail but the headlines to kind of review the characters which I think at first was a little bit about reviewing the NPCs but also there's a good tip in there somewhere as well about reviewing the player characters especially if you're in an ongoing game obviously rather than a one shot but if you look at what the players have got on their character sheets and the things they want to do and the drives and their advantages or whatever else that'll give you start you know, start to give you better ideas about what you should be including in your game again you might have forgotten Yes, someone might have an enemy on the character sheet or something like that or a, a long lost sister or something else and you just you, you know you're busy doing your own thing with your cabals and you forget all about all that stuff exactly yeah it's, yeah. it's uh, well worth revisiting character sheets every now and again to see what what it was because the big numbers on the sheets of the players about the things they want to do most of. Yes. So that that's straight away going to give you some ideas about what you should have more of in your games potentially. Yeah, that that is a good idea, isn't it? Because you can tend to do that right at the start, don't you? You try to kind of blend in the uh, player characters into the world at the beginning when you're doing your session zero or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, later on, you forget about all those little more Five sessions later, you've forgotten. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a good idea. Because you've got your own thing going on. Yeah. I think the other interesting bit from the book I wanted to pull out was quite a lot. We could talk for an hour on each of these books probably, but we'll try and keep it brief. Another one was defining secrets and clues. So the stuff that should go out to the players or for the, the things they're trying to discover. But a, an interesting concept, uh, concept was making it abstract for their place of discovery. So I know that me and Baz, for example, previously have talked about having multiple ways of getting to the same point by a variety of different clues, so like there's no blocking points in your, your pipeline kind of thing. Um, but it's an inter- more interesting approach, possibly, to have, like, I'm going to give out this information at some point, but I don't know how yet. Uh-huh. It might be the drunk at the pub, it might be a note they find in someone's drawer, it might be, you know, I'll wait to see what the players do to try and find out things. And then I will reveal the information. I've got my big bag of information to give out for this session. Yes. Yeah. I thought that's quite an interesting way of doing it. And as long as you maintain a very similitude that it was always in that drawer or it was always that drunken block you had to speak to, I think players are perfectly happy with that as well. Yes. Yeah. And I think I do tend to do it that way, actually. I never have a fixed point for the clue to lead to the next bit. It's just what interesting event happens. And then that's when it'll be revealed. Yeah. That's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do sometimes have Schrodinger's clue, which yes. may or may not be in the trunk, depending on if someone looks at it or not. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few bits. I reckon going for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the, the original one, actually, it's, it's aimed at D and D, isn't it? More. Yes. Than yeah. Yeah. But there's lots of good stuff in there. So the, the other point I quickly wanted to make about it was that it's good at highlighting lots of other bits of advice from other places. So it mentions things like fronts that come from Apocalypse World. Although I know a lot of people think it comes from Dungeon World, but if you think Dungeon World's great, guys, go back and look at Apocalypse World and realise that's where most of the stuff comes from. Just saying. Yeah. But anyway, he does point that out in the book, to, to, to be fair to the author. But it's things like that where he's pulled out bits of information from all over the place and there's quotes from different members of design teams of D&D and yes. uh, internet yeah. personalities and all these other people. So it's, it's a good book to get for getting tidbits that 
has already been researched from what other people have written or spoke about, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's a good consolidation. The first one also has a lot of uh, case studies from Games Masters, other Dungeon Masters. So he right. did a bit of a survey to try and understand how people go about their prep. So, yeah. That's interesting, yeah. I'll, uh, we advocate that one. So I'll get, yeah. put up another one. This is a this is a blog. This is one that keeps cropping up in interviews uh, when I've done them on the uh, on the podcast. So Gareth Ryder Hanran has mentioned this, and so has Ian Cooper. So it's S. John Ross's uh, Roll Top Indigo, which I think probably falls into that category of uh, game theory, game thoughts, try, trying to find a lexicon of games. But one of the things that he talks about is what is it about role-playing worlds that appeal? And this is the one that Gareth Ryder Hanrahan pointed out, is that there needs to be an element of cliché, needs to be uh, ability to combat, so there needs to be something to have conflict with, should be some idea of fellowship and a degree of anarchy, you know, so that as uh, players you'll want to disrupt whatever's around there and enigma. Um, so there needs to be a puzzle, something to engage with, something that's uh, mysterious. Right. That was something that uh, Gareth Ryder Hanron re- referred to. Ian Cooper talks about how he was the first that he was aware of that coined this idea of high trust, low trust games. So this idea where, you know, once you're familiar with everyone and everybody's comfortable, that you can actually resolve things very simply. Whereas, you know, if you're you know, back in the day, if you're worried about how uh, to resolve an issue with a man falling from a helicopter and landing on the bonnet of a Ford Escort uh, safely, you might want the rules to try and determine that. But whereas mm-hmm. if you've got yeah. a group of players I've been playing for a long period of time, you can negotiate and agree that and have some simple way of resolving it. So I think that's uh, that, that's interesting uh, idea of that. But this very uh, this is this is very much in the theory end of uh, thing, but it's worth dipping into. Yeah, I, I think I've got an interesting thought about that from um, the game of the gun that I'm running, and it's it's been mentioned by my players. I'll call them my players because we're all GMs as well. So whenever there's a decision to make or a question about rules that we haven't spotted explicitly, everyone then has an opinion about what yes. should happen next. And usually Alex, or one of the other players, Alex is quite good at it, will say like, no, come on, Gaz is GM. And it's just like, it's I've got the talking stick sort of thing almost. It's, you know, when we've all got an idea about how we can resolve something, but so it's, it has to be like stated that for this particular session, this is the guy we're nominating to be in charge and we trust that he will make a just yes. decision, etc. But, but it's funny because even when you say something you can see in some people's eyes like you'd have probably done that differently yes. but you know because there's a high trust game and we all trust each other like people just go with it and assume that I'm not you know I'm not doing anything maliciously bad and it's not like an egregious error so we'll just roll with what yeah. I said kind of thing Yeah. but some people have been trained in the old way haven't they kind of like from Viking Hat Gems and don't want to do anything in case they get punished for it by the gem for making the wrong decision or that sort of stuff or want to see the rules off the gem in case the gem's cheating in some way. Like, yes. It's weird how the, the sort of that pedigree that role players come from. I'd like to think we're in a more enlightened well, age at the, where people can At the moment I'm uh, trying to put together a game of Aftermath and I uh, don't know if you know this game uh, from back in the day <laughs> Fantasy Games Unlimited. When you look at this, it, you know, this is a low trust game you would uh, categorise it as because it's got everything. It's got the um, stats for uh, a bicycle as a, as a vehicle. Yeah. 
I have seen some BRP games with like stats for cats and yes. dogs and things like that, and I just think, well, what are you doing with your lives? <laughs> you know, who wrote all these stat blogs up? Because you can't trust your DM to come up with those numbers. Uh, the, other, the other thing that he does on the uh, site, uh, which is worth visiting, is that he's done um, an assessment of all published um, role-playing supplements and adventures and boiled them down to the... Um, the plots, plot types, uh, as an exercise, right. and that's really good for just uh, looking at them. So better late than never. You know, some bad guys have arrived to do some bad things, and bad guys have made an escape, and so you've got as a PC got to go and track them down. We've all done that, haven't we? But it's uh, it's good to take some of these and then invert yeah. them, isn't it? So you know, yes. what what do you do when you've caught the bad guys and uh, retracing the steps? because they've left it behind where it is or you know that kind of thing you can take some of these common ideas you can repurpose them a bit like we were saying about the monsters yes yeah yeah I mean there's I think they put it in Legend of the Five Rings maybe third or fourth edition or something but there's there's one of them where they had um, the 40 or 38 or however many it's like writers stories like there's only ever there's only so many stories have ever been written and uh, in the interview I did with uh, Robin at the crack and we talked about this a little bit and he, he was rightly indignant that anyone should claim there's only like 38 stories. Like there might be only 38 premises, but there's like infinite yeah. numbers of stories depending on what you do with them. So yeah, it's good to have that list to sort of say what thing might be happening. Oh, there's some betrayal. There's some unrequited love. There's whatever to give yes. you some ingredients. But then you make your story out of it. Yeah. You know? That doesn't give you your entire plot. And I think what's good about this is because it is based on um, role-playing games. So the plots come from role-playing supplements they're all action orientated so they rather than being from a narrative tropes or narrative stereotypes these are from um, actual games so you'll know you know that they've got a bit more of a pedigree yeah yeah right yes there's definitely some meat on the bone there yeah yeah because people not recommend already cool talking of gareth rider hanrahan as we have he's also published some how to write continarios notes which i don't know on your list or not they're very useful one of the things that made me smile while reading it, he's got like a list of things that you might need, uh, and he's, he's kind of he's put interesting in front of all of them. So you need interesting handouts, interesting puzzles, interesting NPCs. <laughs> I just repeating the word interesting all the time, which might seem superfluous, but I think I get where he's coming from with that. He's like, don't just have a list of NPCs. Yes, have interesting NPCs. Yeah. If they're not interesting, don't have them in the game. Like, why are they there? You don't need them. You can make up uninteresting NPCs on the spot. That's not a problem. So that's quite quite amusing. And one of the things he notes as well is saying that the PCs are just important as a scenario, which is one of the things we were discussing a little earlier there, where I was saying sometimes I create the PCs first and then work out what they're going to do afterwards. But yeah, it, it breaks down as well, like what, what sort of things you'd have. And you might just have an opening scene and a finale, and in between there you'll have three to five encounters. And that's it. That's like your, that's your adventure. So it... It's, I don't use the word interesting again, but I will. So it's interesting that him and Robin and some others have ideas of structures yes. of how scenarios might look. And I think for one-shots, as this particular document's about, that makes a lot of sense. For campaign games, that might mm. not necessarily be true. So you might not have to get to a finale at the end of every session. You can kind of get to your, your time you've allotted for your session and leave it there for now and finish it off next time or something. So when we're talking about beats and how you pace a game, it is interesting to kind of consider if someone's playing long form 
Yes. How you chop that up and whether you make it as strict to make every session have to have all these elements that are advised. And you know, what if you have 10 encounters before a finale? Maybe you'll go through three, four hour sessions before you get to a proper finale. But then what do you do with the end of your first two sessions? There must be something there, right? Yes, yeah. That's, that's a really good point because I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I play a lot of games online. And even before the lockdown, I was playing a lot of games online. And we did the Two-Headed Serpent uh, campaign. And that was the last long campaign that I did. And in a two-hour slot, I tried to have it as like, they were like mini one-shots. So they all, each had like a climax at the end and a cliffhanger. And it felt appropriate for a pulp game to do that. Now going into this yeah. uh, Eberron campaign, I want it to be different. I want the pace to be a little different so that you can do that exploring of character and exploring of place. And you're right, sometimes it may not be necessary for us to always have like a, a climatic end of that two, two hours because... Part of the problem is if you do a lot of online gaming and you've got that two hours, you can feel the beats. You can feel where things are going to happen. That mm. they, they have those two hour slots have a natural rhythm, and again, you want to disrupt it a little, don't you? You want to do something that's a little different. Maybe have the climax yeah. at the start and then have a downward beat. You know, yeah. so. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. I think Gareth uh, Hanran's uh, stuff comes from that discipline of the Irish con scene, wasn't it, where they wrote an adventure and shared it amongst them, and so it had to be. Yeah, you have to submit. You have to submit your scenario ahead of time to yes. get approved. So you're and it's, to give, it's given to somebody else to run as well, isn't it? So, yeah, and yeah, anyone can pull it out of the the stack of adventures they've yeah. got to then take yeah. it away and run it for other people. Kind of thing. So Blythe would be right at home with his, uh, you know, how he types up all his adventures in full. He would find it no problem. <laughs> you were either the posting notes. From... <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. There's a posting note here, and there's a bit of I've written it on the back of an envelope there, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I've got a bit of beer, Matt. <laughs> yeah. It's different. So just to cover off of the, a couple of the bits I noticed on uh, on Gar's work, although, again, there's quite a lot there if you want to go and research it yourself. He mentions having a good hook, a reason to be in the game and on the mission. Uh, so that's something you provide if you're providing a one-shot game. The characters should have that. I think our advice generally, or certainly mine, is more have that session zero and get players to come up with their own reasons mm -hmm. why they're on the mission, but make sure they have one. Um, I'm play One of the games I'm playing at the minute, unfortunately, has one player that's already declared their character hates all the other characters and you know when, when they met the rest of the group was obstinate and didn't say anything and it's all like come on this is this is like basic stuff now we need you as a player to try and get your character involved even if your character is reluctant to speak to us or doesn't like us or whatever as players get on board with that idea so I think that, that sort of just haunts back to the, the, the sort of notes we always give on our shows that it's down to the players as much yeah. as the GM even though we're talking about GM advice uh, and I guess the other thing about characters I wanted to quickly mention there from him is um, the sort of niche protection. So, you know, some guys going to want to do a lot of talking and have those sort of skills, so let them do that bit. And there's a fighty guy and all those other types of guys you might have in your, in your game. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if you've got a talky guy, it doesn't mean that nobody else can talk. Like, other people can have interactions as well. A sort of key point is that other players should be able to recognise who's the lead for something. Like, so who is the lead on talking to people if they need, yeah. like, the best talky guy? I think that's an interesting thing to do in terms of not only the PCs that other players should know what each PC is the best at almost, 
is having something for your NPCs as well when you're gemming a game. Like, what, yes. what is it that they're yeah. known for? It might be that they're really wealthy, so you might describe how opulent they're dressed or something, or it, you know, if they're feared by the population, you might see someone like scurry to get out of the way as they approach them, or you know, look terrified having spilt the beer over them in a bar or something like that. But it's uh, having identifiers for PCs and NPCs is like the one thing that they're known for. Yes. I think it's a really good way of bringing the world to life as well when you're jamming. Good. Well, like the other aspect he's mentioned is funneling the game towards mm. the next scene as well, when we're benching beats and things like that. I like his idea of sort of narrowing the choices or the outcomes yes. so that lead to yeah. an obvious next step. My last one is, you can get this in, in the bookshops, this one. This is from uh, James DiMatto, who is from the One Shop. Uh, podcast and he's done a couple of books uh, the ultimate rpg character backstory guide which was the first book and the ultimate rpg gameplay guide and i said they're you can, available in bookshops these and uh, it's it, they look like management self-help books you know the way that they're laid out and everything it feels like uh, you know seven habits of highly effective people or whatever. <laughs> what I what's it, what I like about this one is it's got some exercises in it, so it asks you some questions of how to do certain things. And one of the chapters that I like is about improv and uh, how to do the yes and because that that's something that intuitively you kind of build up that idea of building on other people's ideas, but there's some good practical exercises in that because you hear that mentioned don't you the idea of you know okay yeah yes that happens and then this happens but in here it gives some good practical guides on how you as a player can use that and you as a gm can use that that's something that is missed i do see like yes and yes but and all, all those kind of phrases and it's kind of that forger stuff that gets knocked about a bit that like you're yes. all supposed to automatically know what that means and be able to be good at it. But I think coming up with the, the ands and the buts and the extra bits is a bit of an art, actually. It takes you a little while to get your head around it and to come up with good ones that really resonate with people when they when they come up. I think that's a, a good book to have, then, to have some yeah. like practical applications of it. Yes. Yeah, and as I said, there are exercises in it. And it, throughout it, it tries to... I think this is effectively, even though it's kind of a dense book, tries to demystify it a little. And it does feel like one of those that people who are keen on uh, critical role or keen on um, the new generation of uh, role plays would find it good and accessible to read. Right. I'm out of a read of that myself. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the, my top tips as we go along that I've, I've noted is that I've gone back and read some of these things, uh, books like Robin's Laws of Good Game Master and all the rest of it. I thought, this is quite good, really. You know, I, I forget. You know, and, and again, it's as we're discussing about player characters and you forget what's on the character sheet if you're the GM after five sessions. I think after you've a couple of years have gone past, you forget the GM advice that you know. Or yes. that you know, when you read it at the time thought that was great. Yeah. And sometimes you kind of forget your own like you say, you fall back onto your own patterns sometimes. And it is useful to go and read what other people are doing or see how they run games or playing yeah. some other people's games, that kind of thing, to get a bit of a refresher. And and that's a key thing you're saying there, actually, because I think that while these guides are good and they're out there, nothing beats actually doing it, does it? So it's no. seeing other people do it and learning from other people. Absolutely. So all these, all these guides can give you a few nudges here and there, but it's actually the practice of just learning from others and learning from yourself as well, knowing what works and what doesn't for you 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you might want to get good at Kung Fu, but you can only watch so many Bruce Lee movies. Exactly. Well, you've got to go and hit some boards. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you've got to do it to do it, as it's exactly. using Apocalypse World phrase. Yes, yeah. So one of the other ones I got, I'll, uh, I'll chuck in there. Greg Stolze, I couldn't find it on his blog. It might still be there, but I found a RPG Net thread that's got all these words in anyway, which is happy, happy news. It's how to run role-playing games. So interestingly, he puts down as being the gem in the order of plot, character, conflict. So that goes more in your style rather than what I was saying of character first, then, then conflict mm. plot maybe or something. But I think what we're saying is you can do those things in a variety of different orders depending on how your brain works. He reckons that your job as GM is to provide opposition, but also notes that not every problem has to be profoundly difficult. So he mentions uh, paper tigers. So it says that every so often you should just have some dramatically inferior opponent to your players or your play characters so they get a chance just to beat something up easily. And that's good for teaching rules, you know, just to get people used to games, but sometimes it's just good to make the feel, you know, make the players feel better. Just have some like obviously beatable opponent that the the players get to load it over. I think that's quite a useful thing. Uh, and he just talk a little bit about railroading, which can sort of suggest that the gem's trying to force people down um, a certain path, which I think the the role playing hobby as a whole rails against, ironically, because mm. it's called a railroad. He does make the point that it's sometimes worth having a clear goal, you know, and, and you should have a good hook to get you on there. So. You might know your arrival destination, your departure de- uh, station, sort of thing. You don't have to follow the same tram tracks to get there, kind of thing, the same railroads. But you know, that doesn't mean don't have a strong hook to get people involved in the first place, and don't like have an idea where you're going. It's it's more about like don't be quite as worried about exactly how they're going to get there. I think it's the thing to do because uh, I know people get obsessed by the idea of railroading and don't want anything to you know. I can't have anything if the gym's telling me to go, so I'm going to go the other way just to. You know, break their plot or whatever. Well, let, let's not do that. But you know, there's a middle ground somewhere in the middle where there's some structure that you agree to, and we'll just work out how we're gonna all the details of it along the way, kind of thing. Which I think is an interesting point. He also mentions having things about, um, you know, an obvious way to get involved, which we said. Characters making a gain or suffering a setback as um, and that sort of like feeds back to Robin those things that he said in in that Germany seminar about like, you have to. You have to provide some opposition in some way. If the players just get older on the way all the time, I know myself as a player that's felt unsatisfying sometimes. If you just walk over all the opposition and all the clues are too obvious, and the you know the little puzzles are set up are really you know you know the answer straight away, you don't get as much enjoyment out of it. You have to, I know we we we've made the point about the American and the British audiences maybe being different, but <laughs> like everybody needs something to push against, right? You need a baddie or some kind of conflict that you have to overcome. To make it worthwhile. Yeah, and uh, I've I found this idea of railroading. I mean, it has become a pejorative term, hasn't it? Now that you mm. know, you get everybody, like you say, rails against it. Part of uh, what I've been doing over the last couple of years is taking old scenarios, so vintage modules, if you like, from Gamma World and these other places, and you realise you can see that there's a clear line through them. And yeah. part part of the fun is trying to break that up. And uh, <laughs> you know, dismantle it so that you can have a different path or a different way through it. But you're right; you, you do have the same goal. You're still taking the same goal. You're just uh, allowing a few uh, diversions along the Meandering way. Meandering about, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. A, I I find that you know because I 
it, up until this year, really, I was mainly doing pre-written scenarios. And, right. you know, because I, I, the way I've uh, characterised it, I'm not particularly an old school role player. You know, I don't I don't really subscribe to OSR. It's more like, um, you know, these people have vintage cars like a VW Beetle. But I like to restore them, but soup them up a bit with some yeah. new technology. You know, put a better <laughs> radio in them. and uh, You're not bothered about the original parts necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, yeah. I'm not precious about uh, the bits in it, and that's why, for example, doing uh, Gamma World over the weekend, I take elements of King of Dungeons and mm. some of the ideas from that thirteenth age of montage to get yes. the journeys and that those kind of things. And you realise that it's those kind of things that bring it to life. So yes. if you've got, you still it's still like old. Uh, you still get a little nostalgia kick of using an old module like Famine in Fargo, which is very straight line. But if you break it up a bit and do like he says, you know, it's like allow a bit of a wander around and use some of the technology that's available in new games, you can actually bring new life into them. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, I looked at um, the Witcher RPG, a friend got it for me. And I looked at the adventure in the back of that, and I, I like I literally booed it. I like I shouted "boo" out loud at the book when I was looking at the pages because there's a bit in the story where like you have to get captured, and then you're not allowed to escape until this certain thing happens, and it's just like oh my god, will you stop? Which is interesting. I think written by the same guy who did, or the same guys involved who was involved in uh, Let's Not Be Primitive Screwheads as well. And it's interesting to know that there's a through line there of someone playing the same way for. 40 years or whatever it might be but yeah let's let's not go back to the bad old days of that's what I call railroading where you're just yes. told like you're captured now there's nothing you can do to avoid that capture and you're not allowed to escape until we've done this cutscene so I can deliver this box text to you and yes. etc et that's, yeah. that's railroading to my mind but, uh, yes. yeah so there was one other I wanted to mention unless you've got any more no no um, uh, which was the Alexandrian which I think you've, you've actually looked at yes yeah uh, our blog, but that's that's got some good stuff on there. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention was no best scenario design, which you'll if you've seen Tales from the Loop and how they're suggesting the mysteries, there's a bit of that in there. So if you're interested in investigative scenarios and things, I'd have a quick look at that. I'll put put a link in the show notes for you and stuff. And the other bit that caught my eye is got like several parts on the art of pacing, which is a subject dear to my heart. So clearly, I'm going to give that a go. Uh, and it was about, it's sort of like techniques that I use anyway, but again, this might, might help some people in that you can break down things into when's the next meaningful choice. So I've, I've been in numerous games where you're doing a chase scene, but you, like there's nothing you can do to affect the chase. And the GM keeps asking, what do you do? So I keep running after him. Okay, what do you do next round? I run after him. So I've caught him, yeah? Has something stopped me? Well, I'll keep running after him. Then, you know, it's, it's one <laughs> yeah. of them. So it, it breaks a lot of the pace down into identifying the intention. Like, what is it the characters are trying to do? Choose some obstacles that might go in the way. And if there aren't any, they just do it. And then skip to the next meaningful choice. And that's that's a good phrase. I've, I've tried to use that as well when I'm describing what I mean to other play, people is, you know, give us meaningful choices as players. And if there isn't a meaningful choice, assume I'll do the obvious thing you know so breaks down is sort of like you could have something as an example like you're at the city gate what are you doing oh well we'll go look for a tavern okay well here's a list of taverns well we'll go to this one okay what, what are you having to drink you know and you can go into all that kind of minutiae if you want if that's what your players like but an alternative example is you're at the city gate we're looking for a tavern 
okay, so you spend a long, hard night partying and you spend all your money, you're a bit hungover the next day when X happens. You know, you can skip to the end and get to the bit where something exciting is going. You've been robbed. You see some guy jumping out your bedroom window and he's got all your stuff. Or he's got your magic sword. What do you do? Like That's a much more exciting and pacey and interesting sort of... There's a meaningful decision to be had there by the players. If it's, do you have the lips and schnauz sausages or do you go for the vegetarian option in the pub? I would argue that's not really something I want to roleplay about. I'm not not that invested. So there's some good stuff in there. And he goes goes for the bits like scene framing and doing like the smash cuts to a next scene. When you're done with one scene, just do the TV thing. We just flip to the next bit of action happening. Could be two weeks later in a different town or whatever it is, but move things along and have interesting stuff happening in the game. Yeah, it's a it's a really good resource that blog, isn't it? There's a, a variety of different subjects they tackle. I think it's that one that where I saw the idea of the three clue rule, which goes back to that thing you were saying, just making sure that there's always ways in which you can get to clue. Because um, yes. it it has, I think I'm right in saying that it does. It is orientated towards investigative games. That blog, it seems yes, to yeah. it seems to do a lot of good tips for that. And I always find those more difficult because yeah. as a player I don't find them as much fun no. um, so if you if you don't like playing it, it's being a GM it, it's harder isn't it so I oh, found sure. that I found that as a, a good resource to get some tips and techniques on how to do it better yeah yeah and, and it does manage the stuff like having color scenes for example so if you just do want to have a bit where the players just chat amongst or the characters chat amongst themselves and all that stuff you can have that Yes. I have to put that caveat in because every time I mention pace, some people frown at me and go, "Well, but I just want to do this and do that." It's like you can do that as well. Yes, right. I'm yes. not saying you can't have color scenes and you can't, you know, relax around the campfire if you want to. Yes, but yes, judge your audience as a gem. Since this is GM advice, <laughs> if they look like they're having fun, let them do it. But you know, yeah. Well, this was a podcast that at homework. I feel like uh, my head is filled with all these tips, techniques and uh, advice and uh, there's a few of them that I'm going to I'm going to make sure I, I try out. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to revisit some stuff. Like I said, the more homework for this than I do prep for most adventures. <laughs> there's a lesson there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. But yeah, the the other game I'm I'm going to try running some Feng Shui, I think. And I was looking at it again, it's, a, it's giving Robin Laws another shout out, but He's got some good gem advice in there as well. So as well as the generic books, I'd recommend to people, have a quick flick through whatever game it is that you're going to play and see what their specific advice is for that game. Certainly for things like Apocalypse World, which gives you the advice of how to run that particular game. As well as all these generic ones, if you're trying a new game out, have a quick look. It's easy to skip over the gem advice bit because you think, I know all this. I know how to gem. I've been doing it since I was 10. You know, I'm nearly 50 now. What can they possibly tell me? Well, sometimes there's little nuggets in there and it's worth a read. Yes, definitely. I've uh, recently picked up the Leoness RPG and in that it's got the uh, Peterson's Guide to Good GMing or Good, good Gaming. And yeah. it's got uh, the... the I, knew, I knew I'd heard it somewhere before, but this uh, three strikes rule, you know, that players should have three chances to redeem themselves otherwise it's not quite satisfying and I, I think I intuitively do that because as you know I'm a big BRP person but this idea that you're always three dice rolls from death should be yeah. hanging over you all the time <laughs> <laughs> and that bit of relief when you make a roll that you've got you reset the clock to three again <laughs> <laughs> after two fails oh god yeah. that's good yeah, yeah, brilliant stuff. 
And what were we saying at the beginning about uh, GMs not being adversarial? I, I don't mean it in that way, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that game we played, uh, I found quite a fun at one bit where you were like cheering if your buddies did well and you know, <laughs> lamenting their bad roles and stuff like that. And I do a bit of that. I think it's fun. As a, you know, where people know you're doing it in good humour and you're not actually trying to uh, screw players up or something, I think there's a bit of fun there. Yeah, it's, a, it's all part of the pantomime, that isn't it? It is brilliant. Right, well, I think we're about time, Dirk. So thanks very much for coming on and being our stunt baz for the week. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And I've learned something. I always learn something from the Smart Party podcast. I always take something away. So it was good to be part of it. Oh, thanks very much. And I will try and put as many of these links and things as I can in the show notes. So if you want more advice, tips, something to read, you can go away, dear listeners, and investigate there. Uh, Hopefully next time we should have Baz back. We shall see. And uh, I will speak to you all then on What Would the Smart Party Do? Cheers. Thank you.